middle of the storm. It's a great song of resistance. And this morning we're looking at, uh, under our series about the church, about resistance and revolution. That's a great song of resistance. Ollie, can we play that video clip if that's possible? That'd be great. Resistance and revolution. Maybe that's what comes to mind when you think of resistance and revolution. Uh, Last week, Joe was teaching us um, on Rooted and Relevant. Uh, If you haven't heard that, um, weren't here and haven't yet heard it, really, really good stuff he was talking there. Because if we're going to have any relevance, uh, any impact as a church, we clearly need to be relevant to the community amongst whom we serve. But if we simply pursue relevance for its own sake, then we risk losing our distinctive roots, our foundations as God's holy people. And if we lose that, then we don't actually have anything of relevance to bring to the community amongst whom we serve. I want to take that a bit further this morning and look at resistance and revolution. So, why resistance? Why revolution? What are we resisting? Well, the short answer that is often given uh, in Christian circles is that we're resisting the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, I know that sounds a little bit archaic, old language and stuff like that, but it actually summarizes really quite well the teaching of the New Testament that we're called to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I want to focus this morning on the world. What does that mean? What is it about the world that we're supposed to be resisting or revolting against? What does resistance look like? And how do we do that? Now, when the New Testament uses the word the world, or the phrase the world, we need to think about what it actually means. Because it can mean a few things. It can just mean the physical globe, the earth that we uh, stand on. It can mean mankind in general, the people of the earth. But it has very specific and rather particular meaning, which comes up time and time again in the New Testament. When the New Testament speaks of the world, it most often means the underlying system, the basic kind of mindset, the prevailing kind of cultural framework within which we live in society. The underlying system, the basic mindset, the prevailing cultural framework within which we live. And whether we recognize it or not, and to a greater or lesser degree at different times, we need to understand that this will always tend to be hostile and resistant to God and to his rule. It will be resistant to the kingdom. And the reason for that is because it is currently, according to the New Testament, under the influence of and subject to manipulation by Satan and the evil powers. You say, that's a little bit strong, Malcolm. Is that a little bit sort of over the top? You know, you're really trying to think our current culture is kind of manipulated in that way? Well, that's what the New Testament teaches. Jesus is strongest of all on this. He repeatedly, in John's Gospel, repeatedly refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. When he was uh, in Luke's gospel confronting Satan in the temptations, 
Satan made the claim that the world had been handed over to him and he could do what he liked with it. Jesus does not refute that claim. Paul refers to Satan as the god of this world. And in another place he talks about the ruling spiritual powers as being those who have enslaved the world. And John says in his letter, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And then we get to Revelation and we find that Satan is the one who has deceived the whole world. That is the consistent teaching of the New Testament, that there is a sense in which this world is under the influence and the manipulation of evil powers. Now, to say that doesn't mean that um, we're suggesting that every person that we encounter actively hates Christians. That's clearly not true. It's not true that individuals dislike or have anything against Christians or the Christian faith. But nevertheless, the underlying system is under the subtle and sometimes not so subtle domination of evil powers. There's a web of deception, of blindness, of distortion, and of corruption that works to obscure the truth and draw people away from God. That's the consistent New Testament teaching. Now, a um, bit of a, a check on your, how well read you are at the moment. Um, stick a hand up if you know what the current term gaslighting means. Oh, hey, I am impressed. Well done. I have a good mind to ask you, but I'll give you the definition to see if you agree with me. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have a clue what that meant, apart from a way to light your home. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a phrase that's currently used, and this is the definition I found. It refers to a form of psychological manipulation to make people question their own perceptions, their own memories, their views of right and wrong, and of reality, using persistent denial, misdirection, contradiction, and lying, it seeks to make people more and more dependent on the manipulator. Gaslighting. And it's increasingly used to describe what's going on uh, in the US political system. And you can probably guess why. The use of denial, misdirection, contradiction and lying to make people question and doubt what they always thought was right and wrong and what they always thought had happened and didn't happen. Seeing a bit of it in the UK as well. It seems to me that not only is that an accurate description of the US political system uh, in many cases, uh, but actually it's an incredibly accurate description of what the New Testament means when it talks about how this world is under the domination of evil powers. There's a manipulation going on behind the scenes, such that the New Testament talks of Satan as the god of this world, having blinded the minds of people so that they can't see the truth. So as a church, first and foremost, we're called to resist because we live in a spiritually hostile environment. It may not always feel like that, but fundamentally, this is a spiritually hostile environment. There's a second reason, however, why we need to, um, why we need to resist. And that is because as Jesus' people, 
we just don't belong. Not really. I mean, I, you know, don't take offense if I look at you and say, you really don't belong. You really don't belong. I mean, I'm not trying to say, you know, get up and go. But the truth of the matter is, as Jesus people, there's a sense in which we don't really fit. We don't really belong in the world system as it's currently configured. Jesus repeatedly states that he was not from this world and hence that most people would reject him, which of course they did. And he says of his disciples that they will be hated by people because they don't belong, and they were. John says that we shouldn't be surprised by that because as God's children, we carry, as it were, a different DNA to the present world. Paul talks in terms of us being from a different country. He says your citizenship, where you belong, where you come from, is from God's place, from heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And so we eagerly are awaiting him to return. And therefore we have to live as citizens of heaven, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of good news. If we are truly God's people, we will always be countercultural. We will always be resisting and facing resistance. Because we come, we are citizens of a different country. It's a little bit like that uh, uh, clip of the Hong Kong protests. There, there are those citizens of Hong Kong who've grown up in an open society with democratic freedoms, and they fully intend to retain those or restore those. And yet Hong Kong is under the sovereignty of China. And the Chinese government is absolutely adamant that they want to retain and enforce a rigorous iron control over Hong Kong, such as they do in the rest of China. They can talk about one country and two systems. It looks to me like the two systems are just fundamentally incompatible. One well-known uh, Christian thinker said this, talking about how the first Christians in the Acts of the Apostles uh, went around. He said, it's like someone who refuses to stand up for the national anthem and who insists, annoyingly, on humming an entirely different tune at a different time and standing up for that instead. goes on, so some per such a person may have an excellent reason for doing what they do, but it's not the best way of winning friends and influencing people. Which is why we as the people of God are called to resist. The church is called to resist. And why the Apostle John goes to far as say, don't you know that friendship with the world, as it's currently configured, means hostility to God and tells us that we can't love this world nor the things it offers us, for when we do, we don't have the love of the Father in us. Jesus puts it plainly. We cannot serve two masters. There is a sense in which, uh, to borrow the title of a book I read years ago, a sci-fi book, we are strangers in a strange land. Strangers in a strange land. Maybe... Sometimes it feels a bit like that to some of us. Do you sometimes feel like a stranger in a strange land? Maybe, maybe we should feel that a bit more deeply and a bit more often. I love this quote from uh, a book that some of us are reading. It's actually from a guy called F.F. Farmer. If you go against the grain of the universe or go against the grain of the world, you're going to get splinters. 
It's true. It's very true. Ultimately, the world cannot simply be reformed or transformed by a few tweaks, by an adjustment here, a new election there. Talking of which, there's an election of hustings here in just over two weeks, 25th, put it in your diaries, going to have a hustings event here. But we can't see the whole world fundamentally transformed, not ultimately, just by a few tweaks here or a new government there or whatever. A revolution is necessary. And a revolution is coming. But it's important to realise what we mean when we talk about revolution. It's not the sort of revolution you saw on that video clip from Hong Kong. Because the sort of revolution we see in society very often is filled with violence as one or other group seek to gain or, or retain power. That's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus and the resistance that we're called to is non-violent, non-coercive. We overcome by self-sacrificial love. Here's another quote. The method of the kingdom will match the message of the kingdom. The kingdom will come as the church, energized by the Spirit, goes out into the world vulnerable Suffering, praising, praying, misunderstood, misjudged, vindicated, celebrating, always, as Paul puts it, bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest. We're called to resist and to work for revolution by means of self-sacrificial love. That is the way of Jesus. What does resistance look like and how do we individually and together as a church put it into practice? Well, there's a whole chunk that I would love to say and I will say, but I'll defer it from this morning because one of the primary ways that the enemy manipulates is something that you probably read about in your Bibles but don't think applies today, and that's idolatry. Idolatry. We need to look at idolatry, but we won't do that this morning but we'll come back to it. So how do we... I'll skip a few slides here, so just excuse that. There we go. How do we engage in resistance? Well, the first thing we need to understand is just because the world is under the influence of the enemy doesn't mean we just check out and retreat into some sort of holy huddle, <coughs> holy huddle where you know, we're sort of safe. Some Christians have done that down the years. Some Christians still do it today. They just want to sort of keep in their own little group because, oh, it's a bit scary out there. We need to hear what uh, John says in his letter. The one who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. We don't hide away. No, we resist the world's present ruler and work together and with the Spirit to bring to prepare the way for the world's rightful king to return. That is our calling. But there are some other practical ways that we can and should seek to resist. Here's a few that I've mentioned. Help each other to stay awake to the true narrative. You see, a lot of the time, many of us kind of go around as though well, everything's basically all right and the world's sort of okay and it's just the way it is. And we don't kind of 
recognize that we are in a conflict situation we have to resist. We need to encourage each other. We need to support each other. We need to help each other to stay awake. What does that mean in practice? Well, apart from anything else, talk about our faith with each other. Sometimes it's easy to talk with each other, and we'll talk about the weather and our job and our family and our whatever else. Talk about the true reality that we live in, our faith. Talk about Jesus, what he's doing, what he's emphasizing with you, how you're struggling, how you're succeeding. Talk about our faith because we need to remind ourselves of the true narrative because otherwise we just kind of lose it. We need to support each other in recognizing and resisting the pressures to conform, to conform to the unhealthy views and values of this world system, to walk in purity and holiness before God. See, not everything in our society is, uh, is totally corrupt. There are things that we can happily endorse and things we can even celebrate. But we do need to identify as those, some things that are fundamentally opposed to the way of Jesus. And we need to help each other recognize those things and to learn to discern. <coughs> we need also to embody, as a community, as a church, what God intends true community to look like. Now, I know that there are times when some of us may be called to campaign for or against things in our wider society, but our primary calling as people of God is not so much to be always campaigning about what others should do, but to demonstrate what God's idea of community looks like, to be the difference that we want, to demonstrate God's alternative. A A few examples. Our society is increasingly polarized, this way, that way. Brexit, non-Brexit, any Brexit, hard Brexit, you know that. In an increasingly polarized society, we need to continue learning together that whatever our differences, we can walk in humility with each other, in unity and love with each other. We need to demonstrate that. We need to embody that. Our society is also very, very much marked by people just losing connection with each other, being completely disconnected from family and and friends and situations and becoming isolated. We need to model something different. We need to model what it is to be a body, to be interdependent, to lean on each other, rely on each other, support each other. And in an age where the prevailing ethic seems to be anything's fine just as long as nobody gets hurt, in an age like that, despite the fact, of course, that Evidence suggests that people are getting hurt all over the place. But in that culture, in that world, we need to model something different. We need to continue to learn together how to live holy and God-pleasing lives. And then we can, as I've put down there, engage in the most subversive acts of all. Prayer and sacrificial acts of service. Prayer, because our true enemy is not anything to do with people around us. They're not our enemy. We love those. The underlying spiritual powers, as I've described, they are the ones who are seeking to manipulate and enslave mankind. They we have to confront in prayer. That is the most subversive thing we can do. That and sacrificial acts of service. Because Jesus never met violence with violence. But he taught us to overcome by loving even those who may oppose us, who may mistreat us, Love your enemies. Do good to those who despitefully use you. And then finally, we need to 
<coughs> no, we don't. Um, we may want to teach. Uh, we we want to help each other to recognise and reject idols. But we'll talk about that on another occasion. We need to help each other to recognise and resist idols. One of the consequences of living in a world that presently remains under the malign influence of the evil one is the horrific history of war and violence and conflict and the deaths of so many that have resulted. Today's Remembrance Sunday. So would you like to stand? We live in this world that is under domination and there's been horrific history of war and violence. And today, as Remembrance Sunday, we recall the immense bravery and sacrifice of those who lost their lives in these terrible conflicts. It's hard to find words, but it's important to remember. So let's just have two minutes silence now as we prayerfully hold these memories before God. Heavenly Father, as we recall the sacrifices of so many, we ask you to search our own hearts. And that we would learn, not merely in the human sense that we think of in, on Remembrance Day, but in an even deeper sense, to be people who resist and work for the return of the true king. Amen. Would you like to sit down? And band, could I ask you to come up, please? So, the church, resistance and revolution... How are we going to resist 
the pull away from God this week? How are we going to support each other as church in doing that, in modelling something different, in encouraging each other to remember the conflict that we are in and to model something different to the present world order?